Welcome back, everyone, to the History of Cologne podcast. Last episode, we talked about all the turbulent events that led to the beginning of the Batavian Revolt in the Gallic-Germanic border region in 69 CE. This episode, all these events of this conflict will unfold right in front of Cologne's doorstep and soon inside its city walls. Last time, Vespasian became emperor as well in the east of the Roman Empire. Now two men were fighting over the throne. Vitalius in the west, former governor of Lower Germania, who had come from his command post in Cologne, and Vespasian, general of the Roman forces in the east, mainly Judea, Syria and Egypt. Vespasian had encouraged the Batavians to revolt against Vitalius, true to the motto, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The Batavian revolt caught the Romans on the Rhine totally off guard. Everyone's eyes had been on Italy. The civil war of the year of the four emperors was on its peak then. With most of Italius' Rhine army fighting in Italy, Cologne and the whole of the Germanic Gallic border region was militarily neglected carelessly. When the Batavians revolted, they were not the only one to follow the call. Soon other Germanic tribes from both sides of the Rhine would join them. And don't forget about the eight cohorts of the Batavians. Those were the ones Vitalius had sent back home because they were stirring up the morale of his troops in Italy. They were still on their way back home to today's Rhine region in the Netherlands. And on their way up north along the Rhine, they got to today's German city of Mainz. At that time still a Roman military fort and not a city for the next 300 years. There, surprisingly, the Roman commander of the fort let the eight Batavian cohorts pass. So the Batavians could just continue their march up north to today's Bonn, just 30 kilometers or 20 miles away from Cologne. Bonn is a really nice place, you should visit it, it's the place where Beethoven was born. We don't really know why the Roman commander did that. Maybe he thought that it was just someone else's problem then if he let the Batavians pass through further up north. Well, it didn't help though. Just as a side note, this Roman commander of Mainz would not survive the following year. Arriving in Bonn, for the Batavians, things were different. The Roman soldiers that guarded the fort near today's Bonn were loyal to Vitalius. They tried to stop the eight Batavian cohorts, but against the Batavians who were veterans of so many battles and now well known about how Romans fought, they were totally obliterated. The fort was burnt to the ground. At the same time, Civilis laid siege to the military fort of today's German city of Xanten that was the most important and northernmost fort in the Germanic Gallic border region. Since Xanten, or how the Romans called it Vetera, was just 100 kilometers, 60 miles, up north of Cologne, our young settlement of the Ubii was now in great danger. This was now the situation in the Rhineland. At the end of the year 69 CE, these early victories by the Batavians would convince other Germanic tribes that were settled as allies on the left bank of the Rhine, like once the Ubii had been, to join the Batavian cause. For example, the Triveri, we had talked about them in a previous episode, I think it was the one about Caesar. The conflict was spreading now like a wildfire. The region of conflict involved today's western Germany, parts of Belgium and the southern Netherlands. But for wonder, the eight Batavian cohorts that had destroyed Bonn bypassed Cologne moving up north and left our young city unharmed. 
they joined forces with Servilis further up north, close to Xanten. This gives us two assumptions. First, Cologne was still loyal to Vitalius at that time, so the Batavians could not enter the city. Second, Cologne was already well fortified, so that the Batavians were not ready and strong enough for a siege or didn't have the material and the resources for that. Or, third, maybe, there was another reason why Cologne was spared so far. Civilis' son, his name is unknown to us, had been taken prisoner by the citizens of Cologne when they heard of Civilis' betrayal. But they kept this young man in good conditions though. He was more under house arrest in an estate inside the city than rotting in a cell in jail. And when the Batavian revolt began, the citizens of Cologne refused to hand him over to the Roman officials of the province. For that young man, that would have probably meant his death or at least a lot of torture. This is quite remarkable. It shows that in these uncertain times, the citizens of Cologne thought not only in the category of being on one side or the other, but also to consider to be a side of their own in this conflict. The question is, who are the citizens of Cologne? Did they talk with one voice? It would be wrong to think that there was just one anonymously opinion among the citizens of Cologne. Being loyal to Vitalius, but at the same time refusing to hand over Civilis' son to Vitalius in Rome? This might give us the assumption that there were indeed different opinions in Cologne that had to be pondered. Adding to that, we should not just simply assume that the Roman settlers in Cologne were in favor of Vitalius, and we should not on the other hand think that all of the Germanic Ubii in the city were in favor of Civilis, just because he was a German too. It was in fact not that simple, and the coming events will definitely show that. Back to the Batavian Revolt, the conflict that had now a tight grip in the region. Ancient Cologne as an independent subject in the region was a thorn in the flesh of the revolting Batavians who now controlled the whole region except Cologne. Using Cologne as a safe haven and headquarter, the Romans loyal to Vitalius coordinated the counterattacks from here. For a second time that year of 69 CE, Cologne became totally packed with all kinds of people. Military personnel, soldiers, logistic experts, carts, horses and mules. Soldiers that were gathered from all across Gaul camped outside the city in makeshift camps. All citizens of Cologne were obliged to do their share in supplying the troops with food and material. But a drought in that year did not really come for the situation for the citizens of Cologne. And because of that, the water level of the Rhine, the most important road of the city after all, was so low that it was not navigable for ships. Not only that, all the territory like farms and plantations around Cologne had been pillaged, raided, burned and destroyed by the Batavians and the trade routes to Rome were now cut off. But where is war, there are war profiteers. The black market rose to unprecedented levels, you can imagine. This is now the situation in Cologne, at the beginning of the Batavian revolt. But for a moment, we must leave Cologne. Just for a short moment, I promise, really, just for a short moment. We jump back to the stage of world politics, well, Roman world politics. Because in October 69 CE, the decisive battle between Emperor Vitalius and anti-Emperor Vespasian took place near the city of Cremona in northern Italy. It was nearly at the same place where Vitalius had won against Otho several months ago. 
This second time, Vatiaius's legions got crushed by Vespasian's troops, who outnumbered their opponents. Vespasian's troops were now also backed up by the troops stationed all along the Danube, and their hunger for gold could never be appeased. After the battle, the city of Cremona was sacked and totally destroyed. The once mighty and beautiful city of Cremona, a jewel of Rome in the northern part of the Italian peninsula, that had been founded by the Romans nearly 300 years ago, would never again recover from this in ancient times. After this blowing defeat and against those superior numbers, Vitalius had lost the war. He knew it. In December 69 CE, in December 69 CE, Vespasian's troop attacked Rome. It is said that Vitalius had already abdicated the throne. He said, all right, I'm heading out. And Vespasian, it is said, was okay with that. But his supporters had forced Vitalius to continue their senseless fight anyway. So the fighting went on up into the streets of the city of Rome itself. When Vitalis' enemies entered the imperial palace on the capital hill of Rome, they searched the whole place. But at first, Vitalis was nowhere to be found. It is said by the historian Cassius Dio that Vitalis hid himself in a dock kennel. Eventually, Vitalis was found. He then was dragged out of the palace into the public, and if you look up my companion post of this episode, this is a later painting of this scene of Vitalius being dragged through the streets of Rome. In front of the Roman people, he was tortured to death and his body was thrown to the river Tiber along with the dead bodies of his brother and son, according to the historian Sueton. Vitalius's head was put on a spike and paraded through the streets of Rome. At the same time, the city was sacked by Vespasian's troops. I told you their hunger for gold could never be appeased. It is said that the city took heavy damage and that 50,000 people were killed. What an advanced civilization the Romans were, weren't they? But as always, we have to take these exact numbers with a grain of salt. Many times they are over-exaggerated, but nevertheless the historic sources tell us that it was one bloody day. With these events taking place in Rome, again, everything could have ended peacefully. Well, not for the cities of Cremona and Rome, where that was too late, but for the rest of the empire. Civilis uprising, the Batavian revolt could now be over. Vespasian had won. Mission accomplished. Give the Batavians what they wanted, their free nation. But as several times before, this did not happen. Now, being the new end, fourth emperor of Rome in the year 69 CE, Vespasian had promised the Batavians to become indeed an independent nation. Yet again, we don't really know why the following events happened. But in December 69 CE, it showed that now the Batavians were not fighting just against Vitalis in the Rhineland and neither for Vespasian at all. They fought against Roman rule in general, the motives of Civilis and the Batavians are unclear to us today. Did they really think they could form an independent nation in northeastern Gaul at the Rhine, at the expense of the most powerful empire that had just consolidated itself under the sole rule of Emperor Vespasian? Maybe Civilis and the Batavians did just think that. Maybe they had come to the conclusion that the Romans were stuck in never-ending conflicts for now, back in Italy, far away. And for quite some time, here in the plains and forests of Germania and Gaul, Rome had been absent. Even after that short time, Rome 
now seem to be far, far away. What the Batavians and the Allies didn't know, not for too long. So let's return to Cologne and the Rhineland, the Germanic Gallic border region. At the end of the year 69 CE, one thing is certain. Roman rule was now totally gone. The remaining forces of the Rhine army that had gone with Vitalius to Italy and had surrendered to Vespasian were not sent back. As punishment, they got transferred far away to the Danube River in today's Romania, so no supplies came back from Rome. And still remember that Roman commander of Mainz I mentioned earlier that had been Vitalius' commander-in-chief on the Rhine? He, for example, was killed by his own soldiers just because they were not okay with him leading them anymore. It was total anarchy now. For a moment, just imagine you are a Roman soldier near Cologne. You have been loyal to Vitalius and you were meant to fight Vespasian and the Batavians. Now Vitalius was dead. Should you join Vespasian, whom you fought? Or should you join Civilis? But wasn't he the enemy as well? So the effect from those circumstances should not surprise us. Roman troops in the region defected. Some even joined the cause of Civilis because they didn't want to join their former enemy Vespasian. The remaining Roman legions in the hasty rebuilt camps of Bonn or Vetera had to decide. Some had capitulated, and parts of them had joined ranks with Civilis already. And there were other cases as well. The legions in Vetera, for example, had surrendered to Civilis with the promise of a safe conduct through their territory back to Italy. But after those Romans had marched five miles out of their abandoned camp, they got totally slaughtered by the Batavians. This meant basically the end of Roman rule for the time being. It now indeed seemed that Rome was really far away. And the city of Cologne itself? It had been spared by direct war and destruction in the Batavian revolt so far in late 69 CE, when the year of the four emperors concluded. But now, with the current situation of undisputed rule of the Batavians in the region for now, it seemed that Cologne had to act in some kind of way to survive. And so they did. A first meeting between noble Cologne citizens and some of Sevilla's allied leaders took place in a private home in Cologne in December 69 or January 70 CE. At that time, nothing should give the impression that this was an official meeting between citizens of Cologne and the Batavians and their allies. And latest archaeological discoveries tell us that before that private meeting happened, things might not have been so peaceful at all in Cologne. A graveyard in the western part of Cologne's old town revealed several Ubian skeletons that can be dated into the time period of 6970 CE. Many of these skeletons were male and had arrow wounds. Several similar findings were made throughout the whole territory of the Ubii by archaeologists in the Cologne lowland. With that, we can assume that after some skirmishes the Ubii and the citizens of Cologne had with the Batavians and their allies, they gave in to the current political and military situation. They might have thought if the remaining former Roman legions of Italians had defected to the Batavians, why couldn't we as citizens of Cologne not do the same? Roman rule was totally gone now and it is yet to be seen when it will come back. If it ever comes back. The thought of joining the Batavian cause might have come just at the right proper time. Civilis and his allies strongly considered to sack Cologne. It was still a young but rich and prosperous city. And a Roman city of course. 
because Colonian's design and sheer existence was a symbol of Roman power that was so despised by the insurgents. But Civilis remembered that his son, in the meantime as a goodwill gesture by the citizens of Cologne, had been given back to him, unharmed and totally healthy. And Civilis also remembered that for the future it would be of good use to have a prosperous and fortified city in your own realm, it might help to stay in power. But the sparing of Cologne came with a high price. Now in early 70 CE, the situation from the beginning of the last episode occurred, that bad bad knock knock joke. Now the Batavians knocked at the city gates with all their might and presented their demands. The settlement of the Ubii should return home to the Germanic family, especially the Tancteri, a Germanic tribe we haven't talked about before, set high demands. They were a tribe on the right side of the Rhine that had sworn allegiance to Civilis and the Batavians. They were the direct right bank neighbors of Cologne and hated the wealth and power of the city. What an irony, they really settled at the same place the Ubii had been before they were resettled by Agrippa. For many years now, the Tengteri had looked over to the other side with jealousy. The Tengteri wanted free trade with Cologne, the destruction of the city wall to verify Cologne's faithful secession from Rome and, adding to that, well, yeah, kill all the Romans in the city. The Senate in Cologne certainly discussed this in a very controversial manner, obviously. The first demand free trade between the Batavians, Tancteri and the Allies of Cologne wasn't a hard thing to do. Tearing down a city wall? Well, nope, this couldn't happen at all. Not at all. Here, the city sent was smart enough to reply that the walls might be needed pretty soon. The Roman Empire would retaliate, now that Vitalius was gone and Emperor Vespasian was the sole rule of the Empire. They had to be ready at all times. Let's destroy the wall? Well, let's wait a little bit after we won against Romans, so maybe later, sometime, but not now. But the last demand, killing all the Romans in the city? This was a topic that must have been discussed in the Senate with utmost passion. The men who were part of this city council of this board were Roman and or Ubian descent. The latter, the Ubii, of course, were Germanic but they had at least full Roman citizenship since the year 50 CE when Agrippina made Cologne a Roman colony. And we have to assume that many Ubian nobles living in Cologne's territory got the citizenship even earlier than 50 CE when Agrippina's granddaddy Agrippa resettled the Ubii in his two governorships many many years earlier. If you simply look at the constitution of the city senate of Cologne, you would have thought they argued endlessly about agreeing or denying the terms that had been presented to them. And maybe that was the goal, especially by the Tengteri, to stir up unrest between Romans and Ubii in the Senate. Without agreeing to an anonymous answer, that might have been the thing the Tengteri wanted. Just to have a reason to nevertheless attack and destroy Cologne, even though the Batavians and especially Civilis had decided not to do so. But here and now, as many times in ancient history, the integrative power of the Roman way of life was shown. There were many senators in Cologne's highest council with Germanic, Ubian, but also Italic Roman origin. After decades of living together, many or maybe most families in Cologne had intermarried between both cultures. In many cases it was hard to determine who still was only one of 
both sides. For example, it was very common for Roman veterans to take an Ubian woman as a wife. And even though you might leap to this conclusion, this hardly happened by force but by free will on both sides. Imagine you being an Ubian woman. What would you prefer? Living in a shed your whole life doing hard work like agriculture? Because that was the main thing ordinary Ubii, no matter of male or female, would do all day. Supporting and supplying the Roman troops in the region with food and material was the original thought and cause of the Ubii being resettled to the Cologne lowland. That was one of the main reasons why Agrippa resettled them 120 years ago, and of course to have some manpower in the region for military service. As a Nubian woman, you could live a life of hard labor work. Or would you, as an Ubian woman, rather live in ancient Cologne, being married to a Roman legion veteran who had money, property and maybe some servants? Just like in the early days of the Wild West, most of the Roman Italic settlers were young or middle-aged men, most of them merchants looking for the big money, or even those veterans of the legions looking for a nice place to retire and found a family. In places like this, Roman women were a rarity, so many young Ubian women were happy to find a more comfortable life and accepted the romantic office they got. As a conclusion, you may understand now that many men that served in Cologne's Senate had their hearts and minds in both worlds, being children or spouses of those marriages. But I got off track a bit. We are still dealing with the problem. How to handle that? Kill all the Romans in the city? Now? Well, here a basic characteristic of Cologne's political system for the next 2000 years did show, being flexible in loyalty. And sorry for being a little bit of snarky, but this is indeed a key characteristic of Cologne through all the decades and even centuries to come, to survive the struggles and turmoil of human history. As you will follow this podcast, you will know what I mean. It is a characteristic we can trace all the way back, even to the year 70 CE, where we are right now. In that spirit, the answer of Cologne City Council was simple. Hey, guys, we would kill all the Romans inside the city. They are enemies now, after all, but as you can see, there are no Romans left in the city. Look around, the, the legions from Italy, for example, already have left because of all the fighting in the region and in Italy. What is left indeed are our families, and yes, many of them have Roman roots, but they are our siblings, parents and children that also have Germanic blood. Regard that our families had been connected for centuries, we are pretty sure you don't want us to spill our own family's blood, don't you? This answer was genius. It killed two birds with a stone. On one hand, Cologne was spared as a city and pretended to join the Batavian Rebellion. But on the other hand, the young city still had a card up their sleeve. Some in Cologne guessed, in the near future when Rome would successfully restore its rule in the Rhineland, Cologne could walk along and say, Hey guys, we were really under strong pressure when you left us defenseless, dear Rome. Yes, we joined the Batavians, but only to survive. We even managed to defend all of your citizens against the barbarians. They even wanted us to slaughter them, all of them. Isn't that crazy? We did not allow that. So um, let's be friends again, maybe, please? This was the plan, and soon the Cologne citizens would have a chance to approve this strategy. When the weather got warmer in spring of 70 CE, 
And since the dawn of time, that is the signal that war season is back. The fighting between the Batavians and Roman Empire continued. Cologne got spared by the Batavians, but now, as their ally, it was now of course expected that they would supply goods and their own men to the Batavians for the war. But the hearts of these Cologne men were not entirely in the Batavian cause. This would show very soon, and then, maybe, you get my snarky comment about Cologne's basic characteristic of being flexible in loyalty. Now in the late spring of 70 CE, Emperor Vespasian had enough time and resources to retaliate. Securing the northern border of his empire for once and for all was important. The empire struck back. Several battles in spring and summer of 70 CE were now won by the Romans. One important battle was fought near the Roman city of Augusta Trevorum, today's Trier, 200 kilometers or 120 miles away from Cologne. The Batavians yet again lost against the Romans at Trier, and with their home not far away, the Cologne men who had fought in the ranks of the Batavians took to their heels and fled. The word of these events soon reached Cologne. Immediately discussions in the city tent began. How to solve this? How do we get out of this alliance with the Batavians? If we don't get out of it quickly, Rome will destroy us, being traitors. It was just a matter of time now until Rome would have restored its control. It didn't matter that a few months ago Cologne still had been a Roman city. It was also the city where Vitalius, Vespasian's now dead enemy, had gotten the power to proclaim himself as emperor. Yes, the argument of having saved all the Roman citizens in Cologne was an important asset. Vespasian sent one of his generals to the Rhineland to reconquer it, his name being Serialis. And yes, his name was really Cerealis and it has nothing to do with your breakfast bowl. For Cerealis, Cologne's act of sparing the Romans getting or killed was not enough to atone. Not at all. Especially after Cologne had fought him recently in open battle alongside the Batavians near Trier. And them Cologne men defecting afterwards? It didn't show any loyalty but their dishonor. The members in the city center of Cologne knew they had to offer something, something more. They had one more asset that could be used now. Because back then, to ensure that the Batavians would keep the promise of not destroying Cologne when they had joined their ranks, the Batavians had given hostages to the city, most of them girls and women that were related to the leaders of the Batavian revolt. Two of those were, for example, Civilis's sister and wife. And of course, many Batavian or Allied soldiers were stationed in Cologne. They all had found lodging in the private homes of Cologne citizens. Another strong force of two Germanic tribes that had fought with the Batavians was stationed in today's Zulpisch, which is just south of Cologne. Maybe, just maybe, if Cologne got rid of all of them, they would redeem themselves and win back the favor of Rome and Vespasian. All of those listed above had to be exterminated. But how to do that? In open battle? Way too risky. So, a plan was made. These fellow Germanic brothers were invited to a big feast in Cologne. The wine was flowing in huge amounts, but only for the guests. None of the Cologne citizens drank. They stayed mainly sober or pretended to drink. When most of the Batavians were wasted or even had passed out, 
The Cologne citizens barricaded the building from the outside and set it on fire, burning all of the remaining people in it alive. It was a giant burnt offering. At the same time, daggers and swords were drawn inside the city of Cologne. All non-Cologne Germans, and yes, sadly even the primarily female Batavian hostages, were killed inside the homes they had just been guests at moments before. This was a very bloody end of the Batavian revolt in Cologne. That burnt offering and massacre in the city did indeed please Vespasian's general Serialis. The devious nature of these actions, they didn't matter for him. The end justifies the means. And war, war never changes. This way Cologne redeemed itself and was again spared, this time by the wrath of the new Roman Emperor Vespasian. Vespasian's troops secured the region, re-established the Rhine as a border, and were here to stay. The Batavians were soon submitted back into Roman rule, and other Germanic tribes were expelled, who fought against the Romans. Here, sadly, the accounted story ends for Cologne and the Batavian Revolt. This is one example how the loss of transmission of events after 2000 years clouds our view of what exactly happened. Our main source for these events of the Batavian Revolt in the Rhineland is Tacitus' historical chronicle that he simply called Histories. Since his histories have not been handed down completely or got lost over centuries, it leaves us blank with what happened after. Those chapters he wrote, they are lost regarding the aftermath of the Batavian Revolt. And there are so many questions left, for example, the fate of the man who started the revolt, Batavian nobleman Civilis, for example. His fate is unknown. It is said that Civilis survived the year of 70 CE, that he fled into inner Germania and was never heard of ever again, leaving the stage of history for good. Cologne, of course, came under Roman rule again. But for some time, it was not just love, peace and harmony. The toll of the Batavian revolt in Cologne should not be underestimated. Farms needed to be rebuilt. The economy was wrecked by war. New settlers had to fill the gaps. But archaeological finds of that era show that the young city recovered not only quickly, but now that the border at the Rhine had been secured, prospered like never before. <sighs> what an episode might be the longest I have done so far. I always aim to make an episode not longer than 25 minutes. And let me take a look. Uh, well, I uh, totally failed this time. Well, really, I messed up. Well, not as bad as many of the people I talked about today in this episode. Believe me, this was some kind of research I had to do. How about something more soft next time? Let's shift down a gear. After all these episodes being mostly a history of events like then happened that and then happened that, we definitely need to take an approach on the matter level. Take a step back. How did Roman Cologne even look like? I never talked about that. Not really. I told you how, it, how the settlement was built, but how did Roman Cologne look like? How did it function here at the end of the Romanized world? In the next episode, I will give you two examples. And those two structures are still around, and I will talk about that in detail. So, as always, thank you for listening, stay tuned, and auf Wiedersehen. Oh yes, sorry, before I leave off this stage here, it's one thing I had totally forgotten to tell you, the call to action. 
Please, guys, if you have the time and you want to see more, I post a lot of pictures on Instagram about the details I talk about in the episode. So if you have the time, go check me out on Instagram. I also have a Facebook page, and I know Facebook is pretty dead in our days in the year 2020, but check it out. And after all, don't forget my homepage, the history of cologne.wordpress.com. There are all the background infos I put of these episodes. So please check it out. I know this is now three things I ask you for. Just look them up and I'll be happy. And of course, if you like this podcast, tell someone. Subscribe. Or if it's just my accent, you think it's funny, it's funny, then tell them. Hey, there's a strange guy. He, he wants to talk about a little city in, in Europe that has one million people, inhabitants, and he is totally butchering the English language. You can tell him that. So please consider subscribing and telling someone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Tschüss.